who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. The Little Blue Book. Zero casualties. Well, one if you counted Private Domkus tripping on a branch and spraining his ankle. But other than that, nothing. So if it was his most successful hatchling encounter yet, why did Colonel Charlie Ogden feel so anxious? Air Transport had pulled all of Whiskey and X-Ray companies out of Marinesco and taken them back to Fort Bragg. North Carolina wasn't exactly a central location for the missions, but it wasn't that far. Only a 45-minute flight to Detroit on a C-17 Globemaster transport jet. Fort Bragg was a big base. Big enough to sequester an entire battalion for five weeks and counting. Aside from missions, the men hadn't left the base or had any contact with people outside the unit save for CIA screen letters or CIA-monitored phone calls to immediate family only. Ogden was no exception. He hadn't seen his wife in over a month. It sucked, but that was war. Fort Bragg also housed the USASOC, or the United States Army Special Operations Command. Unconventional warfare, special reconnaissance, anti-terrorism, all kinds of aircraft coming and going at all hours. No one asked where they went. No one asked why they went. That was life 24-7 for the USASOC, and it provided ideal cover for Project Tangram operations. Throw in all the aircraft available at the adjacent Pope Air Force Base, including plenty of those C-17s, and you had a perfect mix. Built-in secrecy, endless options for transport. The Domrec came and went. No one wondered why. Ogden sat alone in his quarters, performing his nightly ritual. It consisted of three things. A letter to his wife, the Bible, the little blue book. He kept the letter short. He was tired and had to get some sleep. I love you. Miss you terribly. I don't know when I can come home, but I pray it will be soon. The usual stuff, repetitive only because it was sincere and he had to express it to her every day. Fold, insert, but don't seal, 
Tomorrow some CIA shithead would read it and make sure he wasn't writing home about the hatchlings. The Bible was just the New Testament, actually. Most of the gold lettering had flaked off the faux red leather cover. Half of the back cover had torn off somewhere in the Mideast. Just random damage, not sacrilege. Every night he read passages from the New Testament, then moved on to the little blue book. Sometimes he'd skim the Bible passages, skip around, read some sentences and not others. But he didn't do that with the little blue book. With that one, he read every single word. Every single name. He opened it and started reading. Louis a coin, 22. He never wrote down rank. Death was death. You didn't get a better death because you had a better rank, right? Parker Cachetti, 27. He remembered Parker. Good guy. Could juggle. Damon Gonzalez, 20. He'd never met Damon, not even once. He continued down the list of names, giving each one a moment of remembrance, a flicker of light in the terrestrial world just in case the afterlife was dark and silent. Sometimes he wondered if the souls of the dead could experience heaven only when someone remembered their name. Once you were forgotten, you were truly gone forever. Guys like Einstein, Patton, Caesar. Every day, people read about them in the history books, saw their names in movies and TV. They spent an eternity in heaven. Guys like Damon probably would wink out of existence shortly after Ogden himself passed on. He didn't know where he'd picked up that strange belief, but it was always at the back of his head, driving him, pushing him to greater and greater achievements. He had to make a name for himself. He never thought the name could be as grand as that of a Churchill or a Schwarzkopf, but now he knew better. He'd been given a once-in-a-lifetime task, and if he succeeded, victory would land him in the history books forever. Was God testing him with this task? That was definitely possible. God worked in mysterious ways, true, but 20 years in the military had shown Ogden more of man's inhumanity to man than he cared to remember. Sometimes, God just put the players on the field and let them have at it. Before all this began, he thought he'd spend four or five more years at lieutenant colonel, maybe make colonel near the tail end of his career, then retire as such. He wasn't that great at playing the political game. He knew tactics and strategy. He knew how to win battles and minimize casualties. That's what the Army should base promotion on, but it doesn't always work that way. How things had changed in the past five weeks. He was a full bird colonel. He talked directly with the Joint Chiefs, had their total support. He had a black budget, a blank check for resources, for transport, for air support. A command like this should have gone to a more senior guy, but President Hutchins had been obsessed with secrecy, limiting those in the know. Ogden had simply drawn the lucky card for the first mission, and now he got to keep playing it. He'd fulfill the mission to destroy any gate he found, and he'd do it while adding as few names to the little blue book as possible. Thirty-seven names was enough, but he knew there would be more. Many more. He put the book and Bible away, then lay down to get his usual four hours of sleep. At least he didn't have to finish the night by writing condolence letters to mothers, fathers, and wives. In the morning, he'd start planning again, figuring out how to prepare for an enemy that no one had ever fought, an enemy guaranteed to change tactics. Whatever happened, 
Colonel Charlie Ogden would be ready. Gaylord goes to bed. The Jewell family won the honor of having the most infected, but they weren't the only residents of Gaylord sleeping away fevers, exhaustion, and paranoia. Bobby and Chelsea Jewell were already in bed. Donald and Betty slept fitfully at a rest stop on I-75 outside of Bay City, Michigan. Sam Collins was damn old, damn tired, and although he was convinced that someone would probably break in and kill him, he just locked all the doors and went to sleep in his bed. Wallace Beckett wasn't quite so brave. He couldn't stop scratching at his cheek and lower neck. He hid in his pantry, blocked the door with a stepladder, then went to sleep right on the floor. His son, Beck, yes, the lad was saddled with the unfortunate name of Beck Beckett, was so hot he took off all his clothes and went to sleep naked in an empty bathtub. Nicole Beckett, wife of Wallace, mother of Beck, was off seeing her grandmother in Toppenaby. Unfortunately for her, she'd be home the next morning. Ryan Rosnowski was also itchy as all get out. He hated being itchy, a phobia carried over from the time he'd been a kid and gotten poison ivy on his nads. His mom had always told him to stop touching himself so much, but did he listen? That incident meant Ryan always stocked a healthy supply of calamine lotion. He doused his four itchy spots, then promptly hid behind the lumber pile in his garage and went to sleep. Bernadette Smith suddenly had a sneaking suspicion that her kids were talking about her behind her back. She sent her son and daughters to their rooms, told them not to come out or make a noise. If they did, they'd get the paddle again. Her husband, Sean, argued with her about paddling the kids, but she told him to shut the fuck up or she wouldn't let him go to bowling league. In fact, Sean, why don't you just go to the store and get me some tampons, and when you get back, don't you dare wake me up or let the kids out of their rooms. Do you hear me, Sean? Sean did hear her. She didn't use the paddle on him, but she could control him just the same. Chris Sheffy Jones's paranoia was a little stronger than the rest. He was also a little more off-kilter than the rest. Sheffy had hardwood floors covered with a big roll-up carpet. For reasons known only to him, he crawled under said carpet. Confident that this made him effectively invisible, Sheffy went to sleep. The orbital had estimated 15 to 20 successful infections. 10 was below those projections, but still within acceptable parameters for success. And it broke down evenly. Five with the triangle strain, five with the new strain. That part, at least, was right on with the statistical projections. All of the hosts slept. The only question was, how many would wake up? Don't call Dr. Chang. Margaret, Amos, and Clarence sat in the Margot Mobile's computer room, waiting for a scheduled all-hands call with Murray Longworth. Right on time, his face appeared on the center flat panel screen. Murray was watching them on a similar monitor back in Washington. Where's Dew? He asked. Talking to Perry. Can't you guys talk on the road? Murray said. I want you out of there. Clarence leaned forward. Perry had a little accident. Margaret wants to let him rest a bit more before we head out. An accident? Murray said. What kind of accident? He fell down some stairs, Clarence said. Then bumped into a doorway. He's happy to cooperate with us now. Murray smiled thinly. I guess the good news just keeps on rolling in. We've finished the first batch of your testers, Margaret. 
10,000 are being distributed to police, paramedics, and hospitals all over the Midwest. Wow, Margaret said. How did you get them made so fast? Money. How else? Murray said. We'll have another 50,000 ready by late tomorrow. Fantastic, Margaret said. But we're still at square one when it comes to the vector. You know we've got people on that, Doctor, Murray said. Some of the most brilliant minds the nation has to offer. Such as? You're not cleared for that information, Murray said. He sounded annoyed, and Margaret couldn't really blame him. She'd lost count of the number of times they'd had this conversation. She prayed President Gutierrez would loosen the noose of secrecy around this project, but so far, Hutchins' policies were still in force. Fine, Margaret said. I'm not cleared. Let me ask this another way. Do these brilliant minds know exactly what they're looking for? Do they have the whole story? You just keep feeding us whatever biological information you discover, Murray said. We have to keep this compartmentalized. Margaret rolled her eyes. Murray, we had to drop a bomb this time. Your compartmentalization isn't working. Look, I'm not a complete idiot, Murray said. Dr. Cheng is using the full resources of the CDC to find a vector. Right, Margaret said. And how can he do that if he can't say what the disease is? He's using flesh-eating bacteria as a cover story, entering in additional symptoms like blue triangles, skin necrosis, paranoia, etc., He's using all the CDC's disease-tracking databases looking for such symptoms, and he's also working with data that the FBI investigators have collected on each of the host and the host families. Margaret sat back. Actually, modifying the symptoms of flesh-eating bacteria to include the triangle symptoms was a brilliant idea. Everyone in the medical profession took necrotizing fasciitis very seriously and would pay close attention to any updates and requests for information. Okay. I can see that strategy, Margaret said. So what other angles is Chang pursuing? Everything from mechanical and biological vectors to doomsday cults intentionally targeting specific victims, Murray said. He's focusing on the rural nature of the constructs, hoping for a correlation to deer or other animals that flourish in remote areas. The Bambi vector, Amos said. Well, that's just plain brilliant. I'm so glad one of the nation's most brilliant minds is on this. Margaret gently put a hand on Amos's arm to silence him. Murray, she said, deer are not the vector, and this isn't a doomsday cult. Chang is grasping at straws. We need access to the same data he has. Murray smiled. Margaret, Dr. Chang's track record is impeccable, and he's been working on Morgellons for years. He also has the CDC's computer system, the most advanced disease-tracking database on the planet, What makes you think you can do any better from a damn autopsy trailer? The three people in this room already know everything, Margaret said. If there's a connection to be made, we're the ones most likely to make it. Hey, if you're happy with your option number four fighters flying around America, then by all means, keep the status quo. Just make sure we're very far away from the 18 million degree fireball, okay? Murray considered this for a moment. All right, fine. I'll give you access. What about signals intelligence? Clarence asked. Ogden thinks there has to be a satellite involved. Anything on that? Murray shook his head. Nothing. The NSA still isn't detecting any kind of signal. NASA is looking for indications of anything weird in orbit, but so far, nada. It could be a stealth satellite, Clarence said. 
They're telling me the physics doesn't add up, Murray said. It's way beyond me. The enemy is doing things with biotechnology that we can't even fathom yet, let alone replicate, Margaret said. Maybe hiding something from NASA isn't as hard as we'd like to think. Maybe, Murray said. You'll get your access, but do not contact Cheng directly, understood? Apparently, he's not fond of you, Margaret. I can't imagine why, Margaret said. Murray broke the connection. That's great we have the data, Amos said. But seriously, Margot, the CDC has that software, one of the world's most powerful supercomputers to run it, and systems analysts to tweak it. I know the three of us are a clever bunch of monkeys, but what do we have that they don't? That's simple, Margaret said. We have a newly cooperative Perry Dossie. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. The youth of a nation. A child's cells haven't divided as many times as an adult's. Hence, children's telomeres have suffered less damage, mutation, and shortening. They're just plain healthier. So when the reader balls converted Chelsea stem cells into hacked muscle factories, most of those factories produced exactly what they were supposed to produce, healthy, modified muscle fibers. The fibers sought each other out then turned into crawlers that slinked up her nerves. Pains shot up the little girl's body, making her twitch in her sleep, making her whimper, making tears leak from closed eyes. Like the rest of the newly infected, she slept through the pain. Unhindered by bad production or spreading apoptosis, her crawlers made excellent time. The army of slowly moving microorganisms followed the afferent nerves from her hands to her arms, her shoulders, and soon found themselves sliding inside her backbone and into the spinal column. The journey to this spot had not been easy. Nerves run through and or around muscles, veins, bones, tendons, ligaments, and cartilage. The crawlers forced their way through these dense areas, like explorers fighting through thick jungle underbrush. Reaching the spinal column, however, was like stepping out of that jungle onto the smooth asphalt of a superhighway. The crawlers poured into her spinal column by the thousands. From there, it was a hop, skip, and a jump into Chelsea Jewell's brain. Drunken Conversation Dew hadn't been this drunk in a long, long time. The last time had been with Malcolm, his partner. Malcolm, who had been killed by a hatchet to the stomach, courtesy of Martin Brubaker one of the infected. And now, Dew was getting drunk with another of Brubaker's kind. But Dossie wasn't infected anymore. I'll tell you something, Hoss, Dew said. I'll tell you, I have met a lot of tough bastards in my day. I have to say, in some ways, you might be the toughest. 
Perry smiled his split-lip smile and raised the bottle in salute. There was only a swig or two left. Thanks, Mr. Phillips, Perry said, then tipped back the bottle. He left a little bit, perhaps a shot's worth, and offered the bottle to Dew. Dew took it and drained it. For all the good it does me, Perry said. His smile faded, and it had been fake to begin with. He looked haunted. Dew had seen expressions like that before, many years ago. He'd seen them on the kids in his platoon. Not all the kids, and not all the time. Usually after losing a friend, or hunkering down against a mortar attack that lasted for days, or killing a little boy who was holding a hand grenade and running right at their buddies, or the first time they put a knife into a man's belly and held a hand over his mouth while he died. I'm so tough, Perry said. Whoopty fucking do. What did being tough get me? My cock is ruined, man. They sewed it back on, but they don't know if I'll ever get a boner again. They said I might be impotent for the rest of my life. For sure I can never have kids. So you don't get to have kids. So what? I'll never have a son. You have a daughter, Perry said. Do nodded. True, and I love her to death. You got me there. But you know what? She hates fishing. Wouldn't go even one time just to try it. She saw fish on TV and thought they looked slimy. I never went fishing with my kid. Won't be able to do it with grandkids either, because she's not having children. My line gets snuffed out just like yours. Why won't she have kids? She's a dyke. No shit? No shit, Dew said. I don't see her and her partner kicking out of past the little ones, if you know what I'm saying. And I love her for who she is, by the fucking way. So if you use the word dyke again, I'm going to kick you right in the nuts. I didn't say dyke, Mr. Phillips. You did. I did? Yeah. Oh, Dew said. Well, then stop calling me Mr. Phillips, goddammit. Yes, sir. And can that sir shit. I work for a living. You call me Dew, but not Dewey. I hate that. Okay, Dew, Perry said. His voice sounded deeper than normal. Elbows on his thighs, his head hung low again, uneven hair drooping down like a blonde curtain hiding the stage of his face. Dew realized he'd just threatened to kick Perry in the nuts. Probably not the most sensitive thing to say to someone who had taken a pair of poultry shears to Big Jim and the twins. Dew took a deep breath. He'd have to remember to think before he talked. You know what, Hoss? Dew said. Perry managed to shrug without lifting his head. I'm kind of sick of your whining. This time, Perry looked up. Not all the way, but enough for the blue eyes to stare out from behind the blonde curtain. Whining? Perry said in a hiss. How about you cut off your junk, get shot twice, then go through two weeks of an experimental treatment that feels like little men made of fire walking around under your skin and pissing flames on all the important stuff, stuff like your brain. And while you're visiting my slice of paradise, bring in a team of specialists to sew your jimmy back on, minus your nuts, of course, because they had tentacles growing through them, and then listen to the motherfucking specialist tell you your cock has maybe a 10% chance of ever functioning again. How about you do that, do, and tell me I'm whining? You poor fucking baby. 
Perry's eyes showed another emotion. Shame. Or maybe it was just pain. The pain of hearing someone you respect tell you you're worthless. Look, Hoss, that sucks, Dew said. Well, the thing is, you need to quit feeling sorry for yourself. I think I've got a golden ticket to feel sorry for myself, Perry said. I think I pass go and collect 200 bucks on the way, because if I don't have the right to feel sorry for myself, who the fuck would? How about Marty Hernandez? Perry's eyes narrowed in confusion. Who the hell is that? The kid I served with back in Nam. Oh, come on, Perry said. War stories? Yeah, war stories. Just listen, okay? Do let it hang in the air. Perry gave that narrow-eyed look again, but nodded. We were on patrol in the foothills of Ben Tuan. We came under fire, caught off guard. Couple of guys went down right away. Marty and I jump off the trail into a nice little depression that gave some cover, only Marty took around just as he jumped. Hit his leg below the knee, man, severed it, except for a little string of meat and skin. So he starts screaming. I get to the edge and return fire because they might have been right behind us, you know? Perry nodded as if he knew. Marty's in real bad shape, but I can't help him because I've got Charlie coming at us. I can see him charging, so I'm shooting. Marty's bleeding all over. He has leaves and sticks and shit stuck to the stump of his leg. He stops screaming. I'm still firing. I know I killed two, maybe a third. Then Marty... He says real calm like, do, let's get out of here. I sneak a look at him. He'd used his knife to finish the job on his leg, and he's holding his foot and leg to his chest like it's a fucking baby. Bullets are hitting all around me, so I turn back and start firing again. Then you know what Marty does? Perry shook his head. He starts talking about the Raiders. Get the fuck out of here, Perry said. The Oakland Raiders? Do nodded. Yeah, he loved him. Had that logo with the shield and the swords tattooed on his shoulder, man. Bad tat, too. Another guy in the platoon did the work. But that doesn't matter, right? Right. Right. So he's in shock. He's sitting there holding his leg like you'd hold a baby. And he says, they gotta get Flores back. You know about Tom Flores? Sure. He won two Super Bowls as a coach. He was a quarterback first. No shit? No shit. Perry was leaning forward now, eyes wide with interest. Dew continued. Quarterback. First Hispanic in the league. So, of course, Alvarez, El Mexicano, he thinks Flores is fucking God in a helmet and pads. The Raiders traded Flores to Buffalo, and Alvarez was pissed. He says, Dew, they gotta get Flores back. He's sitting there, holding his severed leg, and he's talking goddamn football. So what did you say? I didn't say anything. I'm killing gooks left and right, and I'm thinking, God help me for thinking it, but I'm thinking, if he can hold his leg, he can hold a gun. And why isn't he laying down fire? Anyway, our line forms up on the right and left, and we held. And then our F.O. called in artillery. F.O.? Forward observer. Oh. So the artillery comes in practically right on top of us. I'm still shooting. Marty starts talking again, 
but he has to yell to be heard over the artillery. So he's yelling, I just got this goddamn tat, and they trade Flores to Buffalo. I'm not getting a Buffalo Bills tattoo, dude. I'm just not. Artillery stops. Charlie's gone. So I decide to get the unit the hell out of there. I turn to help Marty, and he's dead. But you just said he was talking all normal and stuff. Do nodded. He was. We could have been in my living room watching Monday Night Football. He was just dead, laying there with his foot and leg in his arms like it was a teddy bear. Dew stayed quiet for a moment, wondering if Perry would get it. I don't get it, Perry said. Maybe Perry knew computers, but he had the common sense of a goat. How old are you? Dew asked. Twenty-seven, Perry said. Marty Hernandez was 19 in three days. He'll never have kids either. He never even saw his 20s, man. Your life is fucked up. I'll give you that. But you've already had a decade more than Marty ever had. And he went out more peaceful than most, Hoss. I watched guys go out trying to stuff their guts back into their bellies. I watched guys crying and begging when someone stabbed them in the chest with a bayonet over and over. So your life is fucked up? So fucking what? At least you're alive. You play the hand you're dealt. You can neither be a man or not. Dew stood up. It took two tries. Perry didn't say anything. Dew swayed a bit as he looked down at the big man. Kid, I gotta know something. Okay, Perry said. When you knocked out Baum and Milner, you didn't take their guns. Why? I didn't need them. Bullshit, Dew said. You were going in there to kill those infected people. Far as you knew, they were dues-paying members of the NRA. Maybe you wouldn't mind getting killed, but I know your kind. The game was on, and you wanted to stop a gate from opening up. You didn't want to lose, am I right? Perry looked at the floor, blonde hair hanging. I want to stop them more than anything, he said quietly. They've taken so much from me, but at least I can still win. If they can't do what they were sent to do, junk or no junk, well then guess what? I win. Fuck them. I win. Do nodded. I know what you're saying. I want to stop these little fuckers like you have no idea. But you didn't take the gun, which means you left a way for them to beat you. Why? Perry sat still and quiet. Do just waited. Sometimes you get more done with silence than with all the words in the world. You're going to think I'm crazy, Perry said. I already think you're more batshit than a padded room full of Charlie Mansons, so out with it. I, I still hear Bill. Dew hadn't expected that. This was one messed up camper. You mean, like you heard your dad back when you were infected? Perry nodded. Yeah, kind of like that. Bill keeps telling me to shoot myself. Shoot yourself. Uh-huh. So I don't want to pick up a gun because cause maybe I want to listen to him. If you really want to kill yourself, you don't need a gun. Perry looked up. Yeah, but the other ways, they take at least a little preparation, some time to think. Maybe you come to your senses, but a gun, you go from thinking about it to pointing it, pulling the trigger in what, like two seconds? Do nodded. He planned on doing just that 
if he found strange, itchy lumps on his own skin. Wasn't eating a bullet better than enduring Perry's ordeal? Yeah, Dew said. Two seconds, if even that. So that's why I didn't touch their guns. He was no psychologist, but even so drunk he could barely stand, Dew Phillips still had all the common sense his mama had given him. Perry had suicidal thoughts, but was cognizant enough to stay away from something that could instantly make those thoughts a reality. Darcy, have you ever shot a gun? Perry shook his head. Get some sleep. Your life is what it is. Tomorrow, we're going to stop letting you feel sorry for yourself. This is your brain on crawlers. Chelsea Jewell woke up. She wiped a mist of sweat from her face, then got out of bed. She grabbed her pillow and dragged the comforter off the mattress. Mommy might come in while she slept. She might come in and punish her. Chelsea had to hide. She opened the closet's folding doors and pulled out all of her shoes. She put those under the bed, then lugged her pillow and blanket inside. She shut the closet door, then lay down, head on the pillow, body on top of the comforter, and fell asleep even before she could cover up. Inside Chelsea's head, 1,715 crawlers were waiting at the base of her skull. As a unit, they released encephalins and endomorphins into the blood pouring through her brain. These powerful, natural opiates spread through her brain, locking onto the opioid receptors and stopping them from receiving any information, in particular, messages of pain. Which, considering what was about to happen, might have been the only humane things the crawlers would ever do. The crawlers surged upwards, expanding through her frontal lobe like a gas. Once dispersed, they unbundled, turning back into individual hacked muscle fibers ready to rebind in new ways with entirely new functions. The I am here signals began again, but this time, the fibers latched onto each other end to end, forming long strands. These strands crossed over each other on all axes, X and Y and Z and everything in between, creating a ropey mesh that ran through her frontal lobe, her parietal lobe, her hippocampus, and in particular, her obifrontal lobe. In many places, fibers formed dendrite-like fingers that connected Chelsea's brain cells on one end and to the mesh on the other. In just a few hours, 1,715 crawlers morphed into a neural net lacing through the parts of Chelsea's brain that controlled higher functions. Functions like memory, thought, reason, abstraction, emotion. Finally, the remaining fibers wiggled and converged at the center of Chelsea's brain. If you could have seen in there, you would have sworn they were attacking each other, ripping each other to pieces. But the fibers weren't alive, and they weren't individuals. They were part of a larger function. They weren't tearing each other apart. They were rearranging, rebuilding, melding. When they finished, they formed a ball some 1,000 microns in diameter. Tendrils reached out from this ball, connecting with the neural net of converted crawlers. Once these connections were made, the ball did what it was designed to do. It sent a signal. Reach out and touch someone. The orbital had monitored early biofeedback from the new strain. Based on initially high levels of apoptosis, 
the orbital had logically assumed that this batch of crawler-building seeds was a total failure. The growing workers would once again have to fend for themselves, try to avoid the son of a bitch as they built a gate. The orbital was already working on creating a second crawler-building batch with a modified code. This would be the last chance, the 18th and final probe. When it received the signal, however, it abandoned the modified code. It focused all processing power on the new situation. This signal, this lone signal, meant potential success. It provided a direct point of entry. And if the orbital could communicate clearly enough, gather enough information, send enough reprogramming code back down the signal chain, then that lone signal meant a vector. The orbital sent a signal of its own and started gathering information. Senior Pictures. Daddy, wake up! Donald's mind swam in a sea of subdued pain. His body burned. Every inch seemed to be deep-fried, and his left hand felt even worse than that. Daddy, wake up! He didn't want to wake up. When he was asleep, he didn't have to feel it. Daddy, my face! My face! The voice finally hit home as did the hysterical urgency of Betty's words. She was mispronouncing things, as if she had food in her mouth. He blinked awake, hissing in a sharp breath as the pain continued to wash over his body. A cough caught the tail end of that breath, then ripped out, dragging barbed wire through his lungs, his throat, smashing his eyes shut as liquid burned his mouth. He'd coughed so hard, he'd thrown up. Teddy! Oh my God! Donald pulled his right hand out from under the sleeping bag, put it on the steering wheel, and eased himself back. The steering wheel felt hot and wet from his vomit. He didn't want to move his other hand. It burned too much, so he left it under the blanket. He opened his eyes and found that it wasn't vomit at all. Blood covered the steering wheel. Blood and bits of something black. Daddy, are you okay? You're coughing up blood. Donald blinked, trying to get his bearings. He hurt so bad. His body burned. His daughter screaming right in his fucking ear. He had to calm her down. Donald turned to look at her and flinched when he saw her face. Three oozing black sores clung to her left cheek. For a second, he thought how nothing could be worse to a teenage girl than something messed up on her face. Only for a second, though, because through the haze, Donnie realized that this wasn't some monster pimple. There was something very wrong with his baby girl. He had to get her to a hospital. He had to get both of them to a hospital. Baby, I... Another coughing spasm built up in his chest. No, not again, he thought. It hurts too much. The cough hit. He covered his mouth with both hands. As he did... His left hand felt like he'd punched jagged glass. Blood sprayed between his fingers, all over the steering wheel, and even into the windshield. Oh my God, Daddy, your hand, your hand, your hand! Betty was in full-bore hysterics now, her syllables running together without punctuation, broken up only by the level of her screams. Donald lifted his left hand. It looked as if he'd dipped it in acid. The wet, shriveled, blackened fingers stuck out lifelessly. Most of the flesh was gone. He could see bare bone in some places. 
At least he guessed it was barebone, because even that was black and pitted. Donald Jewell screamed. He reached across himself with his right hand and grabbed for the door handle. He bumped his left hand as he did. His pinky and ring fingers fell off in a clump, right into his lap. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God! He ignored the missing fingers, the blowtorch sensation. What else could he do? He ignored them and yanked the door open and scrambled out of the car. His blackened fingers fell off his lap and bounced on the icy pavement. The rain had stopped. Donnie ran straight for the nearest snowbank, now a shriveled thing, all crusted with ice. Crying, screaming, he kicked at it with his foot to break the crust, then jammed his blackened hand through the hole and into the snow. His hand burned. He had to cool it off, but the snow didn't make it any better. Another cough hit, this one deep, from way inside his stomach. Hot blood gushed into his mouth. He tasted chunks of something rotten, chunks that burned his tongue. The whole mess spilled out onto the icy white snowbank, covering it with bright red and wet black. Donnie Jewell fell over on his side. Pain overwhelmed him, jabbing into his body from every possible angle. He just wanted to go to sleep again. The next cough yanked him into a fetal position. More red and black sprayed out of his mouth. Something inside broke. He knew it not from increased pain, but when his stomach muscles seemed to suddenly relax, like he'd been curled up by a rubber band that had just snapped. He could still hear his daughter screaming. The last thought he had was a hope that her face would clear up in time for senior pictures. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement, as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye.